Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. And we have a, a short passage today, seven verses, so I want to get the opportunity to read the scriptures uh, with us all. Uh, let us hear the word of God then. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. It's a very familiar text for us. It's uh, Luke's record of the birth of Jesus. And as we study today, hopefully we can hear it uh, not so much as from our uh, 20th century's uh, viewpoint, standpoint, uh, but maybe as those who are hearing it uh, in that first century. Luke records for us these words. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we continue worship, and so we look to this very familiar text to us, especially around Christmas season, we ask, Lord, that your spirit would show us this passage anew again cause us to see it as if it was the first time, to be amazed by the, not only the significance of the birth of your son, but Lord, that we would be able to appreciate and understand uh, historically, culturally, some of the events and the, the details that are found in this text. Cause us to see the richness of how this text points and to the glory of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how it magnifies him. And Father, we ask that your spirit would cause us to understand your text, but that you would cause us to know and love our Savior even more. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not yet know your Son, has not come to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, we pray that today you might cause light to shine in their hearts into that darkness of sin. Show them, Lord, their need for a Savior, that Jesus Christ came to die for the sins of the world. And Lord, we pray that today would be a day of salvation for those who you are drawing to yourself. And Lord, we pray you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. Magnify yourself through in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> I oftentimes like to start our sermons with uh, a passage of scripture somewhere else outside of our text that kind of connects with us today. Usually it's been the Old Testament text. And I, in today's passage, we could probably go to at least two or significant Old Testament texts that we could read that are, uh, would be referred to here. But today I want to go to a New Testament text. And a New Testament text we find in, uh, is in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the churches in Galatia. And he wrote the, in, in really just refuting, kind of reviewing over the gospel of, of grace, he writes about how God sent his son in this verse. And he writes, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
just in this one verse, is just rich and pregnant with much theological significance. We can see even here about God sending his son, that Jesus Christ is his son, God's very son, that the son of God is the deity of Jesus Christ emphasized. We see here the emphasis on his humanity as well, God's, Jesus Christ's uh, dual nature as both 100% God as well as 100% man being the born of a woman. But the phrase I want to emphasize is that first phrase, when the fullness of the time came. This word is a, uh, is a word that really describes something really being filled to the full, something being about ready to basically overflow. It's used even of times where, uh, to speak even of a, of a pregnancy, where a woman who is at the fullness of her time, ready to give birth. The words here of Paul remind us that the incarnation of God's Son occurred basically at the exact moment in history, precisely when God planned it. Not a second too soon, not a second too late. God providentially had orchestrated the events of human history all throughout time so that Jesus Christ was born at the precise moment, at a precise place, in a precise manner. With this passage, as we look at the details, it reminds us that God is in control. We know that our God is sovereign. We know that God is a providential, God of providence, that he is in control of all things, almighty God, and all-knowing God. And, and certainly all these things teach us, remind us that God is in control of our world. We, and even though we, when we think about that, we really don't understand how much he is in control because we as finite human beings have no control over our world. We try to control a lot of things. And we get frustrated because we can't control them. But God, because he is infinite God, he is the creator. He lives, dwells as outside of all creation. He's separate from creation. He himself is in control of all things in a way that even though we can say it, we don't quite grasp it. But everything about the birth of Jesus Christ reflects God's intention, God's predetermined plan in Jesus' birth. And when we see God's particular plan, the particular place, the particular time, the particular manner, we can ask ourselves, we might ask ourselves, why? Why does God choose this particular time to bring his son into the world? Why did he wait thousands of years? Why didn't as soon as Adam and Eve said, why didn't he just send Jesus shortly after? Why did he have to do all that Old Testament books before he'd bring a Savior? We might ask ourselves, why particularly in this particular place, why this, this location, why this part of the world? Why not in Rome? Why in Jerusalem? Why in Israel, in Bethlehem, as we'll see? We might ask ourselves, why this way? If you're going to send a king, you want to get everybody's attention, that you're going to save the world, you send someone with some, you know, some bling or something like that, some, some pizzazz, something to catch everyone's attention. You don't send it in the way he does here. At least that's not how we would do it. But God's ways are higher than our ways, isn't it? God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His, and he does things in his perfect wisdom, his perfect intention, according to his perfect, perfect purposes and plans. When we read the account of Jesus' birth, we will learn to have no doubt that this baby who was born was none other, none other than the Son of God. This was the one who would be the fulfillment of God's messianic king. Because even in his birth, God's promises are fulfilled. 
as we enter Christmas season, today's passage hopefully will remind us of what Christmas is really about. It's not about all the trappings of Christmas that we all enjoy, that we participate in, certainly. But it's about the coming of the Son of God in humility to save lost souls, to save sinners like you and me. The Gospel of Luke is an authoritative and accurate account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's written for the purpose of giving us assurance of the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what Jesus did. Dr. Luke, who is the author, the fellow missionary of the Apostle Paul, records with great care and detail a historical record of how Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises and God's plans for salvation. We have studied back in chapter 1, verse 26 to 38, about how God had sent his angel, his messenger angel, Gabriel, to this young virgin, Mary was her name, who was in Nazareth of Galilee. And he announced to her that she would bear a son. She would bear a son, even though she was a virgin, and he would, she would name the son Jesus. And the amazing thing about this son is not only that he would be the, the, the Davidic king, the Messiah, but he would be the son of the Most High, the son of God. Our text today is the fulfillment of that particular promise to Mary, among several other promises that God has made throughout his scriptures. Normally when we read this passage, verses 1 through 7, we usually preach it all the way from 1 to verse 1 to verse 20. Uh, I know I've done it that way in the past. And because it's very, as we'll look at it next week, it, there's an obvious connection. There's a, and they really do belong together. It really is one message to be studied. But a lot of times when we take this whole passage as one message, we tend to basically skip over all the, the little details. This passage is rich in little details. Luke's very good at details. Right? He's, he was very careful to record all these details. And there's significance in those details for you and me. We can, if I was going to preach this passage, I probably would just gloss, highlight, quickly gloss over verse 7 just to get to the exciting announcement of the angels. That's where the miraculous stuff takes place. After the birth, the, then there's all the angels appear in the middle of the night. The just shepherds get excited. And then as a pastor, I preach, be like the shepherds. Go search for Jesus. You know, or something like that. That's a good sermon, right? No, well, that's essentially how it's preached. So we're going to look at it. In these next few weeks, I'm going to take three sermons. We're going to look at the birth of Jesus today. We're going to look at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And then we're going to see the response to the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Okay, that's, three, that's uh, two sermons for now. All right, so that's where we're going to go in the coming, in this, uh, coming weeks. But I want to take a look at the details of our text today. As we focus on the details of the birth of the Savior, I hope that they will help us to uh, understand more be draw- and be clarif- have clarity in how they reveal the character and mission of the Messiah. You know, these aren't just facts. These are, you know, sometimes we read these things and they just seem very trivial things. Yeah, it was Caesar Augustus, Octavius, Quint Quirinius. You know, you kind of see these things. It just seems very factual details. Something maybe you might put in your head for uh, some Bible trivia someday. But these are not just facts. These are facts when seen through the eyes of faith 
magnify Jesus' character and mission. And I hope we can do that today. Hopefully we can uh, look at this text today and, and, and be drawn to a greater appreciation for the, the significance of these facts. Three, so we're going to look at that basic outline, three circumstances today of Jesus' birth that reflect his character and mission as the fulfillment of God's messianic king. Or just three circumstances of Jesus' birth that magnify his character and mission. Okay, so let's take a look. Number one, point number one in the first kind of circumstance around Jesus, surrounding Jesus' birth is this Caesar's decree of a census. Caesar's decree of a census. And we read, we read, the, we read about this in verses one through three. Immediately, as we just looked at these details here of, uh, <clears throat> of, of these three verses, we see that Luke is, has paid a lot of attention to details. He doesn't just say, uh, in the year of this, and he was born, uh, this took place, but he tells us about a, a decree. He talks about Caesar Augustus. He talks about the census. He talks about the, dec- the, the extent of the census. He talks about this uh, first census. He talks about a guy named Quirinius being a governor of Syria. He talks about... Uh, Everyone being everyone going to their own city, the particulars of the census even. All these details uh, just to tell us about how, when Jesus was born. But, and what, by doing so, he really reveals for us, without even saying so, he helps us historically identify down to the year, and if not even the month and day even, we could possibly do it for some scholars that try to work on it, of when Jesus was born. And it's not December 25th, okay? All right. But I won't tell you what day, okay? And you can go study it yourself. But, you know, it's, it's not about the day. The fact is, the, it's the reality that Jesus was born. All right. Anyways, as we see here, we see this, the three historical markers, the three things that kind of help us identify when Jesus was born. First of all, his birth takes place around a time of a census. Uh, and... And according, and we see that there's a census that was taken, just like our census today. You know, when the government takes a census every 10 years, I think it is in our country, every 10 years they somehow take a census and they try to find out, you know, who, all, who, who lives in our country, where they live. They find out, try to find out all sorts of wonderful things about us. Why? Because they want to, like, give us stuff. No, they, they want to tax us, right? They want, that's, that's just good government. Uh, governments throughout history may have, make sure they know who's in the country so they can tax them. And that's what was taking place in Rome. Even though Caesar Augustus is making this decree from Rome, it's across the whole Roman Empire. He wants to know the numbers of people in every, uh, in every land, even vassal countries like, uh, like uh, Judea here that was, that was ruled by Herod. And, but it, uh, and so these, there's a census this week that was decreed, enacted, and obeyed. There's a second marker. So when would the census take place? Now, in those days, there were uh, kind of cyclical uh, census. They would take place almost uh, approximately every 14 years. And there's evidence uh, out of some Egyptian manuscripts or papyri or like that that talks about that, but never mind that. The second marker here in verse 2 is the governorship of Syria by Quirinius. Some people say Quirinius. Uh, we can flip it around either way. Second marker is this governorship. So... It's sort of interesting why he mentions this, that this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Because although this, this census is taking place in, uh, in, Judea, in, well, in Galilee and Judea, Syria is actually a province, a Roman province that's north of here. It's really not, uh, it's really not, it doesn't normally include this region. This region kind of an independent little vassal country 
that's controlled by Herod. Herod being a good, at this point, was still a, well, he was, he was a good friend of, the, of, of Caesar. Anyways, so the capital of Syria was the city of Antioch, and that being a, a pretty significant in the book of Acts. So the census, we know, is taken during Quirinius' governorship of Syria. And at this point, uh, some, of, some one of you have asked me at one point, and so I want to make sure I, I get the answers that this, to us, is that there are some who are skeptics, who are uh, skeptics of the Bible, looking for errors in the Bible, would point to this verse and say, here is a major historical error. It's perhaps considered by some to be the most major historical error in all of Scripture. And some people can point to it and say, well, that's a historical error. The Bible, you say the Bible's true, but the Bible is wrong right here. Uh, and, you know, most of us have just read through it all the time, and so we've just taken by faith that the Bible says what is true, and we believe it says this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's what it was, right? But let me try to explain to you, because someday someone might come up to you and say, hey, isn't there a major historical error in, uh, in the Bible in that verse? And you will hopefully give you a little background understanding. You see, according to historians, uh, Josephus being one of them, Quirinius was appointed governor of Syria in A6 AD, 86. 6 AD, remember that, 6 AD. However, Luke, remember in early in chapter 1, uh, tells us about it was in the days of Herod the Great when he was ruling over Judea. Okay, when that's when uh, all, everything began, the, the appearance of Zacharias and things like that. that was, and that's only about a year ago. So the birth of Jesus also in, in accord with or coincides with approximately the time when Herod the Great was ruling. Now, Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., all right? So 4 B.C., think about that. Jesus could not be born both while Herod lived prior to 4 B.C., prior to 4 B.C., so 4, 6 B.C., 5, 6 B.C., all the way up B.C., and also be born while Quirinius was governor after 6 A.D. Ten years difference. It's a ten-year gap, eleven-year gap or so. What do we do with this? And so, you know, there are skeptics. There are people, you know, and maybe sincere skeptics. They want to understand. They're historians. They want to say, how do we re- reconcile this? A lot of people will just point to error, and they will say, some people, even Christians, will say, well, you know, the Bible is inerrant as far as spiritual things, but when it comes to the facts and details, the science, the history, well, you know, the geography, we can fudge on that. It's okay. It, it, it was just, you know, minor mistakes. But we here believe that the Bible is true because our God is true. And if God has spoken his word in the Bible, then all that he speaks, whatever he speaks about, whether it's spiritual things, whether it's physical things, whether it's natural things, whether it's historical things, whether it's geographical things, whatever psychological things he speaks to, it's all going to be true. So we read this text, even though we, can, we must acknowledge that, yes, it is a, a reasonable, it is a legitimate historical conflict, at least as we read it. How, what is the answer? And great minds have put themselves to this work <laughs> over the centuries, okay? Centuries. Um, one of the simplest answers, I'll tell you, and up to this point, there's no one answer that has been given that is a definitive, clearly, that is definitely proven that that is the right answer. There has not answered. But there have been many who have offered answers that are possible answers. There are a possible way in which these, these uh, that which allow these verses, what is said here, to be in accord. I'll give you two of them. The simplest one is this, that it's a lexical answer. Basically, it is to translate the word first uh, as 
before. I think the word first is protos. But it can be translated as before. So that the result is that in verse 2, it reads, this was the census taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. So if in that case, then it would be taken before he was governor. It could be taken while Herod was still alive. But it was before Quirinius was governor in Syria. And, that, and that's a possible. And why would they be say that be so significant? So why would that be significant? Why would he say that even? Because when Quirinius, there was a very well-known census that Quirinius does execute in AD 6. It's recorded by Josephus. It's uh, mentioned actually in Acts uh, chapter 5, verse 37. It's referred to in Acts 5, 37 by Gamaliel uh, as, as recorded by Luke. And it was a census that caused this great rebellion in, uh, in Judea. So that's one answer, that it, this basically just took place, this census took place before, and it's possible. But it, it requires an unusual translation of the word protos. But it, it, is a, it is a possible translation. John 15, 18 is one of those uh, ways in that word is used that way. I prefer a second possible answer. It's a, it's a really old answer. It's a one attributed to the work of William Ramsey. William Ramsey was a, basically a skeptic. Uh, he was a skeptic. He went about wanting to disprove the proof that the Bible is false. So, that, and he, so he started studying uh, the historical records, particularly of Luke and uh, Luke Acts, and he became a believer. Okay? That's because uh, the Bible is true. And when you seek him, uh, well, that's sometimes you get saved. You, you get you say you'll, you'll be able to find him. So he became saved, and so he started writing works about the historical action of the Bible. One of his works was called, Was Christ Born in Bethlehem? Basically addressing this very issue. He argues that based upon a, a partial marble inscription, a marble inscription with writing on it, a partial one, because the part other part was broken, is found near Rome, a place named Tivoli, where it refers to a Roman official who twice governed Syria. And he governed Syria. This took place during the reign of Augustus. And there's other things that are spoken about this Roman official that when scholars look at it, when, at least William Ramsley, he says, this can be none other than our man right here, Quirinius. So even though we, <clears throat> we don't have the name on that inscription, uh, it is possible that it is a reference, that inscription is a reference to Quirinius being a governor twice of Syria. So he was once in AD 6, and he would be later on, he was earlier and an earlier time, probably around 6 AD. By the way, even the word governor doesn't mean necessarily mean, uh, need, to, need to translate directly to the title of governor. It could refer, as in the scriptures, we used to refer to, to different kinds of ruler. But say anyone who had a command or leadership over an area. And it's likely, because of the, what we do know of Quirinius' history, that he was a military leader in Syria, a military commander, most likely in Syria, around this time this, of where Jesus' birth. He was uh, charged with defeating some rebels in Asia Minor. And the legion, basically, there's actually four legions, were based and camped in, in Syria. And he was a, a commander of that, uh, of that legion, it's believed. So that's a possible answer. So it is... These, this answer provides a possible explanation, again, for what, uh, for what um, Luke is writing here. That's why he says in Luke chapter 2 that this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor. It seems that he understands and the readers understand that there was another census. It's the census that everybody's familiar with recently because it's the census that led to a big rebellion. But this was the first one, one that didn't lead to rebellion. That's what he's pointing out. All right? Well, 
I know that's a lot of details, but I hope that somewhere you took that in your head and you see that basically just from an apologetic standpoint that there may be errors, there may be apparent errors in the Bible, apparent conflicts, but that if we search the Scripture, we examine even the historical, don't be afraid to examine all the historical records out there, that we can see that God's Word will always stand to be true. We can count and depend upon that. It does not have to be, you just don't have to discount it. or You can see that there are errors of, in, the, in the original text. Well, the third, uh, I go back to the main, the, our first point is that there are these historical markers. We see that there's a census. It's a census that was the first census taken by, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. But there's a third historical marker here, and the most significant is that was found in verse 1 that all this takes place in the reign of the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, right? Caesar Augustus. This decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Perhaps after Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus is the next most famous uh, Caesar, that we were, Roman emperor that we're familiar with. His, uh, his common name that we probably, before he became Caesar Augustus, was Octavian. He was born, Gaius Octavius, in 63 B.C. He was the grandnephew as well as also the adopted heir of Julius Caesar. Now, he's probably very familiar to us. And Julius Caesar was assassinated, I believe, around 33-something like that, B.C. And so uh, Octavius rose up. He was a great military leader and a very skillful military. He rose up along with two other guys. Mark Antony was one of them, uh, some other kind of forgotten guy. And they formed a triumvirate. They ruled the Roman Empire. And they sought out the basically the assassins of uh, Julius Caesar, and they wiped them out. And these three then began to rule over the Roman Empire. Eventually, um, well, uh, Octavius defeated Mark Antony, uh, and then the other guy uh, disappeared into, went into exile. And so in 27 B.C., uh, 27 B.C., a very significant date, the, that which was known as the Roman Republic came to an end when Gaius Octavius was declared the emperor of Rome. The Roman Empire began at that time. He was given the title of Augustus Caesar at that point by the Senate, in fact. Augustus was a religious title. It's not just his name, it was a title. A title that meant some, something that's sacred or holy. It was a, his full name in Latin was, uh, and I, I regret re- reading it and trying to read it in Latin early in the first service, so I won't, but I'll just translate it for you, okay? His full name Latin translates to Commander Caesar, son of the deified one, Augustus, or Holy One. He is the Holy Son of the Deified One. Commander Caesar, Holy. So this phrase, Son of the Deified One, in fact, was found on coins with his image on it. Son of the Deified One. Uh, he was the son of basically Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar declared himself to be a god. And so, since he was the son of God, even though he was the adopted son of a God, he kind of started bearing some kind of deifiedness as well. Uh, he was uh, the, the, the emperor worship of the Caesars really was further developed during this time of Caesar Augustus. He was so, he was so revered that some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted his birthday as being the beginning of the year. And they called him Savior. One particular inscription in the city of Halicarnassus called him Savior of the whole world. 
You see the significance of why of Caesar, of, of Caesar Augustus being mentioned? There's a clear intentionality in the mention of Caesar Augustus by Luke here. God here, he's, he's reminding us, to, or to the average everyday reader in that day, we read it, we, we've totally lost our history, so we don't know, well, what's that? It's not some Caesar guy who committed a decree. We just get the facts that he made some decree and things happened. But Luke, by including here, uses, tells us that God uses the word of the mightiest king of the world at that time, the mightiest king of the world in that time, the one who claims to be the son of God, the one whom others called the savior of the whole world to bring about the coming of the ultimate almighty king, the king of kings of the world, the one who not just claims to be the son of God, but who is the son of God. He's not one who others say he's the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. There's a clear contrast. This, all throughout Luke, there's all these contrasts in place. And Caesar Augustus, these details about Caesar Augustus are, and this, his decree are a clear contrast for us with Jesus Christ, who was born. Even more, when you're considering that Augustus' reign, one of the most significant things about Augustus is that though he was a great military leader, he was even a greater political ruler unifying all the power under him. He began what's a period of peace throughout the Roman Empire known as the Pax Romana, Roman peace, a peace that lasted some two centuries. But we all know that Jesus Christ was born in this world to be the, the prince of peace. He's the eternal father. It's he who came, whose government and whose peace would have no end. Not just two centuries, that's nothing. The peace that Jesus brings is for eternity. It's a peace not all, oh, not with our, necessarily just with our neighbors on earth, this, 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 but it's a peace that was, is with ultimately God, our creator, our holy God, a God who, is, who, is, who we were at enmity with, but when he sent his son to die on the cross in place of our sins and we believed and trusted in him, God, through Christ, reconciled us to him so that we would have a peace with God, a peace with God that's never going to be broken. Nothing else you can do. You can, you can uh, uh, be, uh, still sin. You can be um, a person who doesn't, isn't faithful to the Lord, but if God has saved you and God, you belong to God and he's given you his peace, it is a peace that will never end. You do not have to fear. You do not have to fear his judgment. You don't have to fear death because you have peace with God. This is the eternal peace, the Pax Eterna, maybe. But it's a peace for all who call upon him, call upon his son for salvation. All right, that's the first point. That's the first circumstance, Caesar's decree of his senses. Let me move on to the second point. That is the second point I find in verse 4 to 5. It's Joseph's travel to the city of David. Verse 3, it stated that everyone in Israel traveled to his own city to register for the census. Verse 4 and 5 tells, reveals to us then Joseph and Mary basically traveling from Nazareth and Galilee all the way to Bethlehem in Judea. Gabriel had promised Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph, a son through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He had promised it to this insignificant woman who was engaged to an insignificant man, a carpenter, a poor carpenter, who dwelt in an insignificant town, Nazareth, a town that even no one thought anything good. What comes out of Nazareth from an insignificant region, Galilee? It's not even Judea. They, don't, they speak funny there. From an insignificant nation, a vassal state of the great Roman Empire. They are simply a poor and helpless couple, unable to resist the decree of Rome. And so they leave Galilee for Judea. They travel the 90 miles or so from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And they arrive at Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Luke tells us that Bethlehem is significant because it is the city of David. A lot of times when we hear the term city of David in the scriptures, we tend to think of Jerusalem. That's where David established the, his, the capital of Israel uh, eventually, and that's where he reigned. But when you think about this, Bethlehem as the city of David, it's because that is where David, King David, was born. That is his hometown. That's where he was raised. Joseph was of the house and family of David. And so that was the same place and so, he, so when he was called to go back to the city of his own birth to be registered for the census, he went back to Bethlehem. And he took his wife, Mary, who also was of the house of David. They went there to register for the census. Herod, uh, the great, who was ruling over this region at this point, uh, wisely established a census. He knew that if they basically just were numbered for taxation purposes, there would be a rebellion. But he used something that he knew that the Israelites greatly valued, their tribal identity. And he basically declared that everyone was to go to the, the hometown of, the, the, of their tribe so that they would be numbered by tribe. And that was something that would appeal to him. It's kind of like, basically, hey, I want you all to go to your hometown and go and have to take a couple of days off, go to your hometown, visit with family, and be registered there. And, and it was something that was much more palatable to the Jewish people. The second census that Quirinius would make in 86 was not carried out in that way. And because it wasn't carried out that way, people just registered where they were, it led to the rebellion. Again, we might look at these facts as plain and simple facts. But Luke states, and Luke's very states it so matter-of-factly. But Luke intends to magnify Jesus' character and mission, that this is the messianic king. One of the striking things about Luke is that basically, when you, when you compare Luke's account of uh, the birth of Jesus with Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, one thing stands out. That's why it's good to do kind of uh, harmonies at sometimes, because you can compare and contrast. And it's very fascinating because you remember Luke was very careful. He said, I want to make sure I carefully studied all the records, all the traditions, all the whatever I can get my hand on, and to write down a record of all that took place. So he would write this stuff about the birth of Jesus. But quite significantly, he does not include anything, any of the sections or passages that Matthew contains. None of the oral traditions that Matthew records well, Matthew, you know, being an eyewitness, he, he wrote down his own words. But he doesn't record any of Matthew's words. And it's so significant because Matthew includes things that are significant, like the angel's appearance to Joseph, the appearance of the Magi, Herod's request of the, of the, of the scribe, the chief priests and scribes, Herod's anger at the Magi and, and the slaughter of the children that are under two-year-old, his, 
uh, and then as well as Joseph and his family's flight to Egypt. None of those are recorded. And very likely, and very likely what that tells us is that Luke was having, if he was, if he is to be taken as true because he's writing God's word, then he had, he must have had an awareness of the material, but he was, it was, he was so aware of it that he left it out because it was such a common knowledge at that time. So when he writes of Gabriel's virgin birth announcement, he doesn't mention that it's the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. You'd think he would just mention that, but he doesn't because Matthew already did that. When he writes here of Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, he doesn't mention that this is a fulfillment of Micah 5.2. Matthew already did that. You remember in Matthew chapter 2, when the Jews, uh, or when the Magi from the East came, and they asked about where the king of the Jews would be born, Herod was surprised, and so he asked all his chief priests and scribes, and they answered him, this answer in Matthew 2.5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for that has been written by the prophet. And the prophet is Micah. And then verse 6 is basically a quote of Micah 5 too. You, Bethlehem, a land of Judah, are by the no means least among the leaders of Judah. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So God uses the decree of Caesar Augustus in Rome to move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born there. What appears to be simply two insignificant people forced to move by political powers beyond their control in reality are two instruments of God moved by the sovereign hand so that scripture, his scriptures, his words would be fulfilled exactly as he promised and spoke them. We're just reminded again and again that in Luke, in the life and even birth of Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of God's plans and promises to bring salvation to our world. I think we can find encouragement in this. Just a, as a, just, if we take back it from a devotional encouragement, we can find encouragement that God is sovereignly in control of all things. He's in control of the big picture things, like the decrees of, of uh, these big political events that go around the world, like that of Caesar Augustus. And yet at the same time, he's in control of the little details of a, of a couple on the, being moved to go from one town to another. See, God is in control of the great things, and he's in control of the little things. He's in control of all things, and he's in control of all those great things and little things in your life and mine. And sometimes we uh, get worried about the things that are going on because, face it, a lot of things we try to control are out of our control. God wants us to learn to trust in him. But we can know and learn to trust in him because he is in control. Whether it's an illness, whether it's an impending death, whether it's uh, suffering through um, a wayward child or an inability to have children, whether it's uh, trying to find a job, trying to save up more money, pay off from debts, whether it's a broken relationship with someone that you've just been trying hard, you can't break, all these things that are going on in our life out of our control, but God is in control of them all because he's in control of these details. He works in, in and through the lives of all to bring the holy child to the city of David. The decree of Augustus, the travel of Joseph, leads then to our third point, and they're the very brink of the fullness of the times. And that is we see in this third and final circumstance, Mary's child is born in a manger, in a manger. We read verse 6 and 7. And what's kind of interesting about uh, Luke and Matthew's account of Jesus', uh, Jesus birth, the very moment of birth, is that they're so simple in saying it. Luke just says here, uh, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. You know what? 
I've seen at least two births now, uh, three, I guess, in my family. And I would just simply say, oh, yeah, and Cindy gave birth to some children. It is, if you're going to describe it, it is, it, is, it is exactly what the Bible describes it to be. When they talk about the pains and the struggles, and there's, there is all, all of that is involved. It's a much more detailed, much more uh, uh, agonizing time. There is, well, those of you who know, know, and those who don't know, you probably shouldn't know yet. Go ask your parents. The fact is, Matthew states even simpler, <laughs> more simply. They just simply state, and Jesus was born. This is the Son of God being born. They say, well, he was born. <laughs> Verse 6 is significant and stands out because it speaks of words of fulfillment. While they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. Literally, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Everything, again, is happening in the life of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plans and promises. The fullness of times was at hand. If this was a cup, it was filled to the brim and ready to pour out. If this was a a wineskin that was being filled, it was about to burst. The days of Mary's pregnancy were fulfilled. The child in her womb would not wait another second, would not wait another day. He was ready to enter into our world to be born. And verse 7 tells us, And she gave birth to her firstborn son. The king of glory enters our world as Mary's firstborn son. Many commentators see this mention of Jesus' firstborn son uh, as a reference to the fact that Mary would have other children. And certainly she has other children. We see references later on in Scripture that uh, his brothers and uh, mother went to go seek Jesus. And so she does have other children. And while that is an implication of this being firstborn, the term firstborn is a word that primarily speaks of rank, of a rank. And we understand this usage in the passage of Colossians 1.15. I didn't put it up, but there it talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't talk about how he was the first created being there. That would be a heresy and error. It talks about him being among all of creation, all of the world. He is of the highest rank. He has authority over all creation. And here in our text, as the firstborn, Jesus has basically the rights of inheritance as a firstborn son. And that is significant because even though, yes, this is an insignificant couple, but this is, a, this is a born to a woman who is betrothed to a man who is of the house and family of David. Anyone who would be the Messiah, anyone who be the king, had to come from David. In fact, I think uh, you heard a great message about that uh, last week uh, from our Pastor Roger. That he would, this man was, was, who would sit on the throne would be a descendant of David. The next two phrases we see, though, something that stands out even more. Something, actually, we see something expected, and we see something unexpected. In fact, unusual about the circumstance of Jesus' birth. What do we see? Verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths. That's expected. You know, even today, many of our newborn babies, when they're born, they are quickly kind of cleaned up, and then they're wrapped up. They're wrapped up really tight, swaddled almost. And they're brought to the mother almost immediately. And so we learned to swaddle those babies. And today we, you know, but in those days, they would have strips of cloth that they would wrap around the limbs of the children, of the newborn babies, uh, 
presumably to straighten out their limbs. Uh, now, we don't do that today for the same purpose, but when we see a child that's swaddled, we say, oh, that's totally normal. You know, that's a normal thing. We'd, it'd be maybe unusual if we don't see an infant swaddled. And so in, the same, in those days, when they saw a, sw- a child swaddled, that would have been a normal thing. But the unusual thing that stands out is that though this baby was swaddled, this newborn baby swaddled, just probably, you know, six, seven pounds, swaddled up, of all things, where was this child laying? She laid him in a manger. Not those pretty-looking mangers you see at, you know, the Target or Costco, okay? That's the, you know, really, I mean, I, personally, I've been looking for this magnificent lighted manger scene so I can throw it up on my house and just kind of like shine to the world, right? But that won't even come close to the manger that Jesus, that Jesus was born in. This manger is really another word that simply means a feeding trough. It's a structure, construction that was used for, to hold food for animals. And you could have various sizes. You could have, if you have a lot of animals, it'd be a bigger feeding trough. But you could even have a small feeding trough made out of wood, perhaps, just enough with like a, a, a trough, a bucket, where slop would be put in, grass would be put in, pellets would be feed, feed would be put in. And there the animals would all come and they would just stick their mouths in there and they would... And, you know, they, as they're eating, you know, things will fall out of their mouth. And, and, and it's not like the, you know, the, the innkeepers or the people are going to come and just start cleaning things up, right? It's just going to be over time. It's going to be food gathered in there, uh, perhaps a little bit of rotting food, maybe things if there's other things maybe growing in there, a little, uh, little uh, uh, you know, wetness there. Just kind of a, it, it's not very sanitary, you probably, if you touched it, you probably want to go wash your hands today. It's definitely not where you put your newborn child. But that's where Jesus was placed. It may be the speeding trough may have been in a stall. It could have been in, a, in the open or it could have been in a cave. Maybe it was in a cave. The Church of Nativity in Bethlehem is, is understood to be created over the, of a cave site. But the vivid contrast here is that the newborn prince of peace, the king of glory, was born, he was swaddled, and then he was placed not on a throne, but in a feeding trough for animals. Any first-time parents here would want to, you know, put your newborn baby in a feeding trough, one, a used one, not one you just put together, okay? None of us would. But the Son of God was placed in a spot that even other newborn babies were not placed in. The reason why is stated for us. He was placed there because there was no room for them in the inn. There was no room for, for Joseph, for Mary, and their newborn child in the inn. And one times we think about the inn, we, we sort of picture, oh, maybe like a Motel 8, you know, a vagabond inn or something like that. But recent scholarship has come to study this word that's used for inn, and it probably wasn't even an inn as we think about it, not a formal inn. There's a, Luke will use a different word later on in, the, in his gospel to refer to a more formal inn. That what this is, the word is probably used was basically just, it's just a reference to where they stayed. It could have been a reference to a public area where people would shelter, a public shelter. Kind of like when you're driving along I-5, there's those rest areas where you can pull aside and rest for a little bit. This wouldn't, be, wouldn't have much covering. Maybe you can just, at best, you have a little uh, slant to 
cover you. It could have been a, maybe a large room with, with, uh, with maybe some stalls. But this would have, it would have been a very much more simple than what you and I pictured. There was just no, there was not even a public shelter for them. No place for them. And so in a feeding trough at one of these public areas, on the side, basically, even our rest areas, you always have those areas where the dogs and the cats, or dogs mostly, run around, right? And they do their thing. That's where you put your baby. Jesus entered the world in the, the most humble of manners. He came as a helpless child, born to a poor, insignificant family from an insignificant town, and placed in a trough where animals fed. It was dirty, probably smelly. It was a humble birth. It would be a huge step down compared to how the, probably every one of us in this room entered the world. Probably we were born in a hospital, placed in a nice crib. Maybe we were born in our home. We're immediately by our mother's side. But think how much greater the humiliation for the Son of God who dwelt in glory in heaven in the presence of God, served by the angels, full of majestic glory, and how he enters our world. And he doesn't enter as a full, strong man, but he enters as a helpless child. He doesn't enter as a wealthy person. He doesn't enter as a, as a strong, of a born to a priestly a, a, a priestly family or a political family he's born to a carpenter he's born to poverty and he's placed in a trough this is how our savior came into the world he came in humility and his birth was simply the beginning of the emptying of himself we can't help but think about philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 7 where Jesus Christ has spoken, his, his incarnation is spoken of this, although he existed in the form of God, verse 6, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking for, the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. Jesus Christ, he emptied himself. He dwelt in glory, but he took on the form of a bondservant when he came to this earth. And his humility was not only exemplified throughout his life on earth, but it was also a fulfillment of God's plan. This wasn't just like something that just happened. This was what God planned. We've studied at one point Isaiah 53, where Isaiah, writing about the Messianic servant, says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Basically, something that just didn't belong. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we would, should be attracted to him. When Jesus entered the world, he did not enter like a king should enter. If you're looking for a king, if you're looking for someone to deliver you, you would look for someone with a political connections, physical power, military power, financial strength, resources. You wouldn't look to a baby. You wouldn't look to a son of a carpenter. You wouldn't look to Nazareth of Galilee. You would look to Bethlehem. You might look to Rome. Even Antioch of Syria would be good but not Nazareth of Galilee. And you definitely don't look in a feeding trough. But that's how Jesus came. 
when Mary gave birth to her firstborn child, she wrapped him up in her in the tender care with swallowing cloths, and for lack of any place else, she placed him in the best place possible, a feeding trough for animals. This is our king. Later on, in fact, this would be such a, so significant, this contrast would be so significant that the angels, when they appear to the shepherds, will tell them, this is the sign. This is how you'll know that the Savior has been born because you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. For the believer who reads the description of the Savior's birth, it reminds us of the, clearly of the life that our Savior came to live. He came to live a, he was, came of a humble birth, came to live a humble life, ultimately to die a humble death. We go back to Philippians 2.8, and this will be the last verse. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus came as a, born as a baby. Though he was the eternal son of God, he came and he took on the form of a bondservant, and a babe, a man born to a virgin, to and taking on human flesh, emptying himself of his, of his independent uses of his deity. He humbled himself in that way, but he went beyond it, and he humbled himself ultimately to the point of death. Why death? Because he had to die for you and me. He died for our sins. If you haven't come to know the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, then we ought to no, we ought to weep because our sins caused him to come and die for us. But causes it should also cause us to rejoice and to give thanks and worship him this season. These aren't just facts about Jesus' birth that we looked at today. These are facts that magnify Jesus' character and mission. You know, the, when we think about these, these facts, the decree of Caesar Augustus magnifies Jesus, who is the true Son of God and Savior of the world. Joseph's travel to the city of David magnifies him, who is the rightful messianic king. And Mary's birth of Jesus in a manger magnifies him who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for our sins. And this is our Savior whom we worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you for these truths. Uh, we pray that you would cause us to meditate upon them, reflect upon them, read over it again, Lord. Cause us to be like Breen's and study it for ourselves. Confirm the truths that I've spoken, Lord, in our hearts. May your word be proven true and that your people hear it and rejoice in our Savior who was born. Lord, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you, Father, for being in sovereign control of all the details of Caesar Augustus, of Quirinius, of the census, of Mary, of Joseph, and how you orchestrated in all of these people, in all their lives, to bring about the birth of your son in the fullness of times, to be born in Bethlehem as the son of the city of David, in humility, to show to the world who would look, that he would come humble to bring salvation to a people lost in sin. Well, Lord, cause us to have the similar humility 
as we worship Christ this Christmas. Help us to imitate our Savior in how we interact with the world, even as we celebrate. Lord, help us to not be disappointed when the celebration is not as glorious or not the food is not as plentiful or when the gifts are not as magnificent or when the decorations are just not enough. But in fact, Lord, that we would simply remember that when Jesus was born as a baby and placed in the manger in that dirty feeding trough, that was enough to make our Christmas and every Christmas from henceforth to be the most magnificent celebration ever because we have Christ who is the true Son of God, the true Savior of the world, the Messiah, the King of kings who came and died for us so that we who believe can have peace forevermore with you. Lord, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.